What is up, everyone? My name is Adnan Shafi, and I hope everyone is having a wonderful day today. I can't even believe we're saying this right now, but we're in season 17 of Pariah Nation, and we're going to be discussing some really important topics, especially when it comes to the African continent this month. And I hope that you guys are going to enjoy it. As usual, every single week we bring on special guests, and this week is not an exception. I'd like to welcome on Jesse Forrester. Just tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, some of your achievements. And obviously, I mean, if you can do one interesting fact about yourself, then that would also be a good thing. Yeah, go ahead. Thanks, Adnan. Um, yeah, 17 seasons. Wow. Congratulations. My goodness. Um, good to see how Fire Nation has just been growing. Hello everyone, my name is Jesse. Um, I am a CEO and founder of a company called Mazi. We are building the future of electric mobility, electric shared mobility on the continent. So I think that with our, uh, in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, a fun fact about me, um, I recently found out I'm still growing, which is exciting. So I'm no longer six foot, but six foot one. And I was super excited about that. Obviously, a lot of people didn't believe me, but <laughs> it's it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to to know that. Um, but uh, I think my background lies a little bit in sustainability, and I am a sustainability nut. I believe in kind of creating more sustainable businesses and communities. So I'm trying my best to do something that the world and my community will really, really appreciate in a few years to come. Because I like, I like the idea of, of thinking about the world as we are custodians, as opposed to we own it in a space and time. So we're just supposed to take care of it and pass it on. So yeah, thanks for having me, Adnan. Thank you so much, Jesse. And it's, it's always good news to hear that you're, you're still growing. I think some of us have reached our peak, <laughs> so I don't think we're going to be, be growing anymore, but that's okay. Uh, and <clears throat> yeah, on sustainability, uh, that's very interesting, especially the way things are going with not only climate change, but the way we're structuring our future developments in African countries. Uh, I think it's so important that <clears throat> at least we, we should map out or at least have contingency plans when it comes to how to structure our future developments because a lot of people just focus on consuming for now without thinking about tomorrow. And uh, I mean, I've also managed to do my, my studies, like we did our semester of politics in so global to, I mean, local to global sustainable development. So it's actually quite interesting to hear that uh, that's also where like you're specializing specifically. Uh, there's so many different discussions to be had, especially about the African continent in general. So yeah, welcome on Jesse. And even just discussing your company, I mean, tell us a bit more about uh, Mazi and also tell us about, you know, how the idea came to you and what exactly your, your vision and mission is for Mazi. Okay. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, I really believe sustainability is important and it should be a mainstay for everything anyone really does. Um, so for me, it's more like physical sustainability. Um, my my run-in with it 
kind of the concept came about at ALA where I interestingly or incidentally I met Adnan. Um, and I was involved in a bunch of different projects. Um, and the one that's most notable is the living machine. So um, I want to ground together with um, a colleague and really good friend for a hundred thousand bucks. And we were building a wastewater treatment facility, um, which I didn't get to see until I graduated. So <laughs> during graduation was this huge pit <laughs> surrounded by like construction, um, like a construction fence. Um, so it was really cool to go back in December of 2019 and actually see it. Um, so, but this, this machine was capable of recycling wastewater and also, you know, LAM and solar to power it and natural systems. Um, so the, the idea for Mavi really started with me doing another project or kind of like the concept. So I was involved in something called a living machine at ALA where I met Adnan and we were building uh, wastewater treatment facility for the school's campus. The idea was to take part of the campus off the grid, right? And so this system could recycle water, could produce biogas, could um, grow food through aquaponics, could irrigate the schools, whatever. So it was quite an ambitious project. Um, and me and my good friend and colleague um, really, you know, kind of slaved through it from March of 2018 all the way um, until August. And so as I was back in Kenya on the summer after my first year at ALA, you know, I, I think a lot of people did a good job when they came back in December. So I joined ALA in September of 2017. People came back to, you know, do build in a box or kind of like, was this like OID, original, idea for development. And so people came up with like small projects and I felt really guilty because <laughs> I spent my, my two weeks just really partying um, and, and catching up with friends. Uh, and so when I, was, when I was coming back now in, in June of 2018, I thought, hey, I really want to do something cool. And so my focus, you know, initially was I was looking for something to do. Um, I was applying for the I was applying for the Zion Sustainability Prize, but then I thought, hey, um, building electric vehicles um, might sound like a cool idea. And I was actually walking in town and a Matatu cut me off, um, as usually they do. Um, and there was just a bunch of smoke in my face. And I was so upset, because uh, if, if I've been passed by a Matatu, Matatu is a 14-seater uh, van. The amount of smoke, it's, it's, it's black, it smells really bad, they drive really badly. Um, and I thought, hey, how comes no one has thought about solving this? Um, and the idea kind of stuck with me. And looking back, you know, I've always been interested in transport. Um, I always give the reference of Mishuki as a transport minister back when I was growing up, or when we were growing up. And he kind of like changed the transport industry. For a time, people were wearing seatbelts. Um, they don't wear seatbelts anymore, but the long-lasting change he left was people don't stand or they don't overfill massages. Everyone gets a seat, um, at least um, for the most part, right? Uh, and so I thought, wow, this was pretty cool. And I remember my mom saying, I always told her I'm the Minister of Transport because uh, I wanted to continue on if he left. Um, and so 
but that didn't really register until much, much later in my journey. So I told a few friends, hey, I want to do a tattoo and make it electric. And I thought I was mad. Uh, my idea was to initially start putting a solar panel on top of my tattoo. That was, if you know anything about physics, that's really dumb because um, <laughs> one solar panel, you need about 60 of them to power my tattoo um, for a day. And, where do you fit that on our tattoo? So and I quickly realized I needed to find someone who was well, smarter than me, <laughs> at least physics-wise. And I did, but I had to go back to ALA. And so I went back to LA in 2019, finished up there, and then came back, was doing an internship somewhere else, and thought to reach out to them uh, back in end of, end of 2019. So I finished my internship um, at a wastewater waste treatment company and I dove head first into Mazi around 2020. Um, and obviously we know in March the pandemic happened uh, and that was a, a bit, you know, kind of chaotic, six months of just, oh my goodness. Um, but fast forward until now, we've pivoted, we're now doing electric motorbikes, we've got about 10 in the country, we've sold a few um, and we're growing. And I have now a team of about 10 people that I currently employ and two years ago, I was in high school. So it's kind of insane to kind of look at the journey and, and, and think about you know, my A-levels, et cetera, and now I'm running a company. So, but our, our true vision and what's really guiding me is, I really believe that a shared, a shared future that's, a shared mobility future is something that the continent can really benefit from. We have the lowest percentage of personal vehicle ownership the world as a continent and i think that's a good thing i think it's a good thing that we don't have cars because you can imagine if people had cars and the way traffic is in nairobi i'm sure Adnan, you can attest terrible so i think we have an opportunity to then what you know has become a buzzword but leapfrog um where we've seen other countries fail with better shared mobility we're making sure that it's clean cheaper to operate and better for everyone as a whole Right. So there is an economic argument and there is a climate change argument because, as we know, we've only got nine years now, eight, um, and the clock keeps counting down. As much as Africa only contributes about 3% in total to the world's greenhouse gas emissions, we're also growing really, really quickly. So it's also uh, a pre preventative method. So, yeah, that's really kind of like where, where we are in our mission every day to serve operators with affordable, clean and efficient on-demand energy. Um, and our vision is that shared mobility platform that allows people, data and goods to move effectively throughout the continent. <clears throat> yeah, thank you so much, Jesse, and congratulations because I know it must be a lot of hard work and a lot of research. And you said uh, you had started in early you know, 2020 and you know from march onwards so it's roughly like a year and roughly a year and a half almost and yeah i think i mean i just want to just touch on that main point of using electric vehicles and i i find it very interesting the fact that you know, this could actually be something that africa takes the lead on you mentioned that we have the lowest percentage of personal vehicle ownership in the world so obviously if the population is growing and you know more people will need cars in the future we don't even have to think about, oh, we need to import from this country. We're actually taking ownership of our own future 
And I really think that that's where Mazi is going to start coming in. <clears throat> and I'd love to see Mazi grow into something where, you know, that's, you know, you it's, it's, it's like a type of brand of car, you know, when people say, oh, I want to drive a Mazi or I want to drive this, you know, and uh, it's, a, it's a model under your company. That would be really, really awesome in the future. And not only that, I mean, we can talk about, I mean, the climate change argument, et cetera. But if we manage to take lead on something like that, there's so many different countries around the world, especially in the global south, that use similar public transportation systems to us. So people might be like, oh, wait, you know, you'd never think of oh, tuk-tuks or anything like that. Rickshaw is not really popular around the world. But when you go to somewhere like India, for example, that's something that so many people use. Right. And I've seen on your website already, you're working on um, an electrical tuk-tuk. But then now you also have like, you know, those electric motorbikes as well for the, the Nduthi, in quotes, the Nduthi. Yeah. And um, I'm pretty sure in South America as well, they have similar systems of public transportation. So I think that that is simply, it's, it's amazing that we're in a position to actually say that, you know, this is a global South issue and we're bringing global South solutions that suit us to be able to actually make the global south a better, better place because when people talk about development they often just point to the west and i actually actually every single time people talk about the west being developed i always mention specifically this it's like how you developed but not sustainable right because if you if you're able to you know build these fancy skyscrapers if you're able to increase the amount of production that you have in society but that's not sustainable then what's the point in the end it just proves that you're a society that's focused far more on individual needs of now compared to something that's actually going to potentially harm you and your children or their grandchildren in the future so could you just tell us a bit more about uh, the electric tuk-tuk and uh, the, the motorbike as well let, let us know a bit more I know you made some really great points, honestly. Um, it is a global South issue. And we, we we set our sights on Africa for now, but then think really the developing world um, would get there, right? And you really see majority of transportation um, in, happens on, on bikes, just in terms of just sheer number of trips that are made. Um, and, and now Matatus and tuk-tuks or the rickshaws in India. In fact, you know, India has really taken big strides to become electric with government incentives from 2010 over until now. And we are learning a lot from the Indian market in terms of uh, electrifying and have some things to then develop differently here. But then you see it's almost very similar conditions, similar geography, similar climates. Um, so pretty cool to actually be in this riding this absolute massive mega trend um, because what we're seeing is you know pretty much what the Rockefeller and, and the Ford the old industrialist capitalists were doing back in the day um, in terms of just creating a whole new industry obviously not on the same scale because they're not making new cars and new ways of moving but the shift, and I don't think the world or people really grasp how much fuel and fossil-driven vehicles are indentured into our way of life. Um, the, the whole shift that we need to make on the supply chain um, and on the demand side, um, and then on the everyday running is immense. 
And I think there's absolutely massive opportunity. If I talk to you about the size of the two-wheeler market or the border or the new e-market, as we call, call it here at Mazi, um, is about 250,000 bikes bought in Kenya every single year. You're looking at at least $4 billion market. And that's pretty massive, especially when looking at Kenya as a whole, right? Now, if you add a tuk-tuks to the mix and you add matatus, we, we don't really know. It's not a tax um, system. It's, it's semi-formal. Um, and so there's a lot of cash um, that's, that's happening or that's actually in, in the place. And so the bike itself, it's a flagship bike called the Magnus 3000, 3000 based on the motor power, um, and kind of both 50% reduced costs compared to fuel, 52% cheaper to maintain because you don't have all the moving bits and pieces. Um, we're equipping it with a dual battery um, because range anxiety is still one of the biggest concerns. Now, as much as EVs promise a lot of greatness, I'm not gonna lie to you, there's still so much to go in terms of the infrastructure that's being built. And so in that, in that way, we're very similar to, you know, uh, those old industrialists in terms of building infrastructure. No one really wants to do it because it's expensive and lots of mistakes to make, but I think Mars is really, you know, kind of like we're beating our chest and we're saying, look, we're going forward, we're going for this because we think it's going to make a lot of sense in the next few years. Um, and so I think that is one of the biggest challenges facing um, mobility as taking off beyond just like finance and how capital intensive it, it is as, as an industry. But someone was, was telling me, hey, um, <laughs> you've chosen quite, quite the sector to get into uh, for your first business. I said, you know, it's a problem that has to be solved, and I think I'm in a unique place to, to solve it. Um, and so, yeah, so th those are some of the features of our bike. You can go about 140 kilometers um, of range, and we, depending on, on how it's driven, um, and trying to improve the quality of our bikes and the quality of our batteries, become more locally assembled. Everything was locally assembled with our first bikes, but also locally manufactured, right? Uh, and so right now, we haven't taken any external capital, but we can assemble over 250 bikes a month um, by ourselves, a really small team. So we're running very leanly. Um, and I think we have the potential to then grow exponentially or grow really, really massively um, as, as time is going by. Um, and so I, I think it's also really interesting to note that, you know, we, I am one of the few Africans at the C level, at the founding level um, in e-mobility, because what you see is there's a bunch of just kind of like foreign influence. Um, and some investors don't really understand just how well we understand the market as opposed to a foreign entity, um, because the mistakes then made by them that we don't make in terms of maybe they have more money, so they end up you know, getting our warehouse that cost like say three thousand dollars a month, and I, I end up using. I mean, I have similar number of bikes, and I end up using a space that cost me a hundred dollars, or you know, kind of like ninety dollars a month, right? So the the capital efficiency that we have and understanding the rider at that point of need is something I think we really win out on in terms of the competition. Um, or at least when when we're speaking to investors about like our bikes and our technology and what we're building. Um, but truth be told, you know, right now it's so early days and uh, there are less than a thousand electric bikes in Kenya by my count. 
uh, they are out of like a 250,000 market a year. Um, and so it's just so immense. Um, and so even the, the early, um, you know, developers of the business, you know, their ability, we're all trying to prove the viability of an electric motorbike because the biggest concern at the moment is, I don't know where I'm going to swap my battery and where I'm going to charge my car, where I'm going to charge my bike. And I need to figure that out. And so that's exactly what we're building here in Mali. Jesse, I mean, the only way that I can describe the vibes that I'm getting from this right now, Tony Stark vibes. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm getting uh, from Mazi at the moment. And this, this idea of, you know, tech, and you know, building the bikes. <clears throat> A couple of points that I want to touch on in relation to how you did it. I absolutely like hats off to you, the fact that things are locally manufactured and the fact that it's also like, you know, the parts, it's locally assembled as well. <clears throat> I think that a lot of people, unfortunately, have the mindset. And ever since colonialism, actually, uh, I was doing a few studies on, uh, on this. And you actually find that a lot of the countries that were colonized, a lot of the things that they're trading and a lot of the trade routes that they're using come from the former colonizer or at least go to Europe in some way, shape or form. So the fact that we are beginning to become more self-sustaining that is that is an amazing thing and i keep telling people that that's the route that we should ideally be trying to take because not only are you providing more jobs for people you know people who are actually interested in building bikes all these different things that's something that could be you know potentially huge in terms of creating jobs in the future but also this is something that the community heavily benefits from because now things like petrol we're hearing about petrol is now being taxed in Kenya, insane, right? Adding value, uh, value added tax, but now people might not even have to worry about this with the advent of electrical vehicles. And as you said, yeah, but that's actually something I was just gonna ask about, like, you know, the only problem is, you know, perhaps range, uh, obviously if people like, you know, want to go quite far, some of these matatus are doing crazy mileage on the daily. Uh, so my first question would be, you know, what is the range of, for example, the, the Ndu, the E, and also, what is the range of the, the tuk-tuk? And also, are there any places that you can charge or are you able to charge it at home? How easy is it for a user to do that? Then the last question is, if someone wanted to buy a bike from you or they had wanted to buy a tuk-tuk from you, how should they go about that? Thanks, Adnan. Really big questions. <clears throat> um, and so, for the product questions for the bike, the range is about 140 with a dual battery. Um, and are there places to swap? Yes, they're not many at the moment, um, but we've built a few swapping stations. One is one was in uh, next to Ngara, but then we moved to Westlands, and we're going to do another one in town, uh, and so. The swapping station basically has right now an eight battery capacity. Um, and it's kind of an interesting chicken and egg situation where demand, you know, needs to catch up to, I mean, so you've got people demanding it and saying, look, we're an infrastructure, but then you have to kind of build it out before you have that to, to then service the few early customers you get. 
So it's kind of like a, a very interesting play where you have to just invest a ton in the infrastructure, just set up points, just to make sure no one is inconvenient. And that's kind of where we are. Um, and then sell a lot to then, you know, meet up that like at the utilization of your infrastructural assets. Um, and so, so that's, it's currently happening. And what we do is we have our, one of our first clients and we're really supporting them. Um, we have the support bike and we're able to actually now look at the percent, like the charge of your battery and know when it's about to terminate. And then if you're with, without or outside the range of our sorting stations, we send a support bike that will meet you at that point of need and then actually do a swap for you. And we give you an alert. So we can do an in-situ swap so to speak, with one of the Mazi bikes that we have. Um, and so we've been doing that a lot with our clients and just kind of like dispatching. It's costly, but I think it's, it's something that we're doing to again, prove that this is viable, prove that we can be able to support the ecosystem as it's growing, et cetera. Um, for the tuk-tuk, it's still pretty early days with it. Um, we think it's probably going to have um, maybe 70 plus Ks of range. You actually see tuk-tuks not going so far as much as bikes just because they're restricted um, because of the roads but the beauty about the tuk-tuk is that we the infrastructure we're building for the motorbikes actually fits directly with tuk-tuks so we don't have to spend more on additional infrastructure and the customer doesn't have to worry hey there's a, there's a motorbike infrastructure built out what happens if there's um now you know like i buy a tuk-tuk and so the tuk-tuk i think will come in next year that's our second product we really want to get the, the bikes right um, at the moment we're taking a bunch of pre-orders um, for the bikes um it's pretty, pretty much where we are um so if someone wants to buy one i would suggest you know they contact us um, on our number on our website www.mazimobility.com um, and we can actually facilitate a pre-order for you and then bring in um, our bike for you as well. And so right now we like to limit the scope to Nairobi um, specifically, and we're very explicit with that. And we also like to say, have a test on our bikes first before you buy them and come with your rider if you're not the person who's going to be riding the bike and let them tell you if the bike is you know, rubbish or if the bike is good. Um, so. I think that's where we actually have some belief in our product. We definitely think it can get better and want to actually make steps to making the bike our own because right now we kind of like brought in the bike um, from China, but looking at designing our own bike because um, we've got some a lot of great feedback from a bunch of customers. Like, oh, it looks too feminine and it's a bit bigger, it needs to be a bit more aggressive, the tires need to look like that. Um, and so, you know, we're kind of trying to respond to the market needs. Um, and then also, you know, getting a durable bike. And you really look at what the bike manufacturers, the big dominant brands, have done such a good job of making good vehicles. Because we have a total order in terms of the market expectation of an electric bike, in terms of just like, ability to perform as opposed to a, to a petrol driven bike that's already doing so well. Um, and so there's a whole infrastructure built up for that. We're kind of put in this position where we have to really move at pace, um, despite not being having these decades of manufacturing capability and experience, right? 
Um, so I think I think that's kind of like the, the big technical stats. Um, for the tuk-tuk, we're thinking about a payload of, you know, probably a ton uh, plus. I think that that would really meet market needs. Um, trying to see whether we can get that. And there's also an interesting misconception that bikes or electric vehicles are not powerful. Um, which is definitely far from the truth. <laughs> um, it really depends on your motor, depends on your battery capacity, um, because electric vehicles have instant torque. Um, and so they actually tend to be a little bit more powerful. And you, you, if you see, um, there's a time at Tesla, I think the Roadster, I'm not sure, was the fastest production vehicle in the world, just because it's electric. Right? You just can't get the same amount of transmission and efficiency with a petrol-driven vehicle. Um, and so the war, if I could put it that way, is on, on uh, fossil-driven uh, vehicles. So Mars is, is definitely doing what we can to support it. Um, the kind of like early customers that we get, um, giving them incentives. For example, you know, we're giving this particular customer free servicing and, and free um, kind of like upgrades on that swapping station because we think this is you know in version one going to version two. So still pretty early days and still developing a bunch of technology, but we've already seen, hey, we're in the market and, and, and people are responding positively to our product. Um, and so, you know, next stage is do a bit more testing at a bigger scale um, and then, you know, kind of see where that, how we grow from there. Um, yeah, no, that's really, that's good to hear that people are responding positively and perhaps, I mean, I'm, I'm a dreamer, so, I mean, I just want to, you know, help people understand the bigger picture, especially if this is not the kind of podcast that you're sort of accustomed to, because it's something new we're trying to do and just see, you know, who are the visionaries of, of Africa and um, I'll definitely classify you as one of them. Because, I mean, I'm just thinking for it, like, if we're thinking from a perspective of long-term perspectives and like, you know, at least let's say you have vehicles going out, right? And you've already talked about solar, et cetera, like, People don't understand that, especially Africa, we're in such a good position to be harnessing energy from nature or through natural means and through renewable means. It's actually insane. Like even, for example, if you look at Kenya, Ethiopia and, you know, other East African countries, a lot of them are actually powered by things like, you know, hydroelectric dams. And some of them are also having... Uh, you know, energy contributions from wind farms, some are also having uh, contributions from solar farms as well. So, I mean, I'm just even thinking like, if we're talking about transport in the next 40 to 50 years, this is definitely a viable idea. And it would not be crazy, for example, to see someone going into town and there's like, you know, solar panels over there and there's a place where you can park your vehicle electric vehicle and you can just plug it in for the night and or not even just for the night when you're working for example and by the time you're done like you know with work you just come back and your car's already on full so i mean this is for me it's really impressive and i think that it's something that favors africans as well in terms of helping us become sustainable because if you look at the rest of the world especially africa we're talking about like you know sunlight exposure and resources in general we're definitely leading the way. And this is something that I think that we should, it should be one of the first things on our agenda because you can't really push society forward, especially economically, unless you have the capability to provide the electricity or the power and the energy to be able to do all of those different things. So it's really, really impressive. And 
I mean, just hats off once again to you, Jesse. But the question that's been on my mind throughout this podcast, and the reason why uh, I'm just going to call you the African Tony Stark is because I can't conceptualize how you guys actually built a bike. Like, it doesn't, it just, just not, you know, connecting. So please educate us. How on earth did you build not just a bike, right, but an electric bike? Did you end up looking at uh, petrol-driven bikes first? And then you sort of change the modeling or did you use a frame from an original bike and then you added your own batteries in? How exactly did it work? Thanks, Adnan, and, and, and a much higher praise, actually. Um, <laughs> I, you know, Tony Stark, that's, that's, that's quite, quite the title. So I wouldn't presume to, to even liken myself to him. <laughs> but I will say I have a very excellent team um you know i think you know i I definitely want to be very decisive in saying look i'm I'm not an engineer by by trade myself right so what i'm them with good ideas and and an ability to develop stuff makes a lot of sense um and so we so for these actual bikes that we had, we didn't make them. Um, what we've been able to make is kind of the technology around the battery and, and the battery swapping station. We are going to be making some bikes after learning from this one um, and kind of like designing our own bike. So we have a bunch of like, because um, again, an electric bike really much uses the same parts as a petrol driven bike. So um, if you've got your you know, steering wheel, you've got your um, kind of like headlamp, etc., and you've got, you know, kind of like kind of basic battery motor that powers the thing uh, and a chassis to carry all of that. And then if you can just like picture with me, wheels, um, some wiring, um, a little bit of a, you know, a metallic cover uh, where the, the fuel tank usually goes, but now it's empty space, so we can put a second battery. So that's really cool. Um, and then the, the seats and everything and the, the, the back indicators. So it's not that difficult to actually build a, a motorbike. I think the challenge is just like securing all the parts and then, you know, bringing them together and then welding and then assembling and, and, and then becoming that. Because what we are doing currently on the continent where we have a long way to go is most people are assemblers. Right, and even even here, most people don't do the actual hard manufacturing, and that's something that we hope is going to change with more incentives, and for the continent as a whole, because you know we're part of this program manufacturing Africa, um, which I don't know if you saw the UK government um, was willing to support and give I think forty something. I don't want to lie, 40 something million pounds for like immobility and manufacturing yeah, um, to, to the Kenyan government. So when I'm coming in, it's kind of like a development package. Um, and so when you're looking at stuff like that, and, and you have to really look at then the ecosystem that's developed around China and India as really good manufacturers and assemblers. So um, definitely want to kind of like, you know, we, we haven't, we didn't make this bike but we are looking at developing our own. This one was one we brought in. We just fully assembled it ourselves, which again was not easy. I mean, um, it was the first time we did it. We did it in my, in my living room. Um, and it's kind of cleared everything out, 
everybody in the team I was working only with them um, and you know I think hats off really goes to to the team that I've been able to build who you know we were all under 25 when we were doing it <laughs> and then um, you know I had like a lot of support along the way and I think that's kind of the story you don't really see when when we talk about like mobility I am the front man um, of my business but I've really got and I'm only able to do what I'm able to do because I've got someone who's good at product, I've got someone who's good at marketing, I've got someone who's good at this, I've got someone who's good at that. Um, and I, my job is basically to enable people who are much, much more intelligent than I am. The, the real Tony Starks of Africa. Um, and I'm just the guy that just brings them together. And I think that's, a, you know, a place where I, I, I love. You know, obviously I'm not knocking myself. Up. I think I'm a pretty smart guy. But, you know, <laughs> The, the, the TV, the TV is good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will mention, of course, uh, I do understand that Tony Stark could not be Tony Stark without the rest of the Avengers. So, of course, there, there has to be, you know, like, obviously hats off to the team because, uh, as I said, like, you know, you guys think, I mean, you, you like sort of low-key said, you know, it's not that difficult to build a bike. I mean, some of us, you know, there's a reason why we're getting bees in physics, you know, Mr. Mr. Shea's class in physics, but uh, I mean, <laughs> you guys are doing great. I don't think that this is something that anyone can just do. So like for real, honestly, this is like, it's a good job that you guys have been able to do. And even just speaking on, on that, about like the eco- ecosystem, et cetera, <clears throat> I wanted to just ask you something, as someone who's involved in tech entrepreneurship. I mean, I feel like it's so important, especially when it comes to funding, uh, and, you know, just structuring tax schemes that are good for young businesses that are being led by young people with good ideas. Um, do you feel like the government is providing you with enough support on your end? And if not, how do you think that, you know, the Kenyan government and not just the Kenyan government, but for tech entrepreneurs around Africa, how do you think they can both incentivize young people to start businesses like this and also support the ones that have started businesses specifically around tech because in africa we obviously when it comes to you know as you said access to parts access to funding it's not just going to be like for example silicon valley or in you know the uk or the us where you can just easily partner up with the university and they're willing to drop twenty thousand dollars to like fund your business so tell us a bit a bit more about that yeah definitely i like i like how you put it for the avengers um Definitely Avengers. That's pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> to go in to think about it. Um, the government, you know, there are some policies not targeted at maybe me as a youth person. Um, actually, let me back up on that. So we received a grant um, that I applied for back in 2019. <laughs> um, and it was basically almost, you know, 30 something K US. And it was a government grant for youth led businesses. Now youth being under 35. Um, and so the government, through now the World Bank, thought entrepreneurship as a mechanism to employ people. And I think they're right. I mean, no brainer, right? People who start businesses, we all seek to employ other people. And if they're young, nine times out of 10, they will employ young people as well, because that's where the network lies. Right. I mean, my team, the oldest person is 30, and he just turned 30. 
<laughs> you know, so so it, it, there is some support. I don't want to say it's a complete black box, right? Um, but and you've got stuff like a youth fund that's that's really out there. But I think access and asymmetry uh, in terms of access to knowledge is terrible. People don't really understand the opportunities out there. I was, you know, I was talking to my banker, and he says, "Hey, I see a credit account from this government. Government." What's that? And I said, you know, that's a grant. And he was like, you can, the Kenyan government gave you money for free. <laughs> Lines. <laughs> You're lying no. to me. <laughs> I was like, no, I mean, they did. And more than the Kenyan government, but it was through the Kenyan government as an apparatus. Um, and I said, there is, there is some capital coming in. But when you look at, the funding scene specifically in Kenya, um, you know, as you said, like you can't really go out, like we, interestingly enough, we are partnered with a training college, um, which is where we are, like where Mazi operates, it's, it's where I was from. And we work with them in terms of just getting the students. Yes, we build most of the technology, but they don't fund any of our operation, but we then just like partner with them to upskill students who are from underprivileged backgrounds. I think 50% of the students at that school are, uh, have our ambassadors. So it's pretty cool to, to contribute in that way. Um, but I think there could be more incentives for young people for sure. Like, I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, beyond just creating programs, um, tax relief for young people's uh, companies, um, you know, um, just like sort of like incentives the government can provide for specifically young Africans in tech and the young Kenyans in tech. Um, and I would like to stress on the fact as Kenyans, right? So um, I think that, that would definitely play a big part. Um, but I usually, and then I really see the private sector picking up uh, slack. And that's because they're more incentivized to do so. So when you think about like an incubator or an accelerator ecosystem, you know, Kenya, I think is a third largest or destination for capital. If I tell you, I think, let me just put up the statistics. If I tell you, um, you know, kind of like, this is like infographic um, of Kenya, Kenya venture capital, like how much venture capital Kenya has come in. Uh, you, you can actually really begin to see there is money, but the question is, does that money find young people like me? Um, you know, so because there are a bunch of different funds, and and what happens is, yeah, we are, I think in twenty twenty three hundred and four million dollars um, came into Kenya. External capital, three hundred and four million, right? Um, disproportionately more favoring young Africans. So there is a uh, there is a representation question out there, right? Because you and I don't have contacts in private equity, in Silicon Valley, in Luxembourg or Dutch, which is where, um, fortunately, unfortunately, most of the money is, right? How it got there sometimes by not so great means, sometimes by, you know, industrialization and entrepreneurship, but that's where most of the investors are. And there's a big conversation early on in the year when people are talking about 
who invests in who and why there's no investment in Africans. Right. So I think I think that's also something that would then begin to change the outlook of the continent um, in terms of how much comes in where. Um, and I think that will then begin to fuel, you know, Kenya's startup and tech economy. So because we are we are a really great place for innovation and growth. Um, I think you know only rival by Nigeria. Uh, probably Egypt, which are both experiencing amazing, amazing growth. It's an exciting time to be alive and to be a to be an entrepreneur on the continent. Um, and so, I think partnering up with people who have these networks and are willing to then recognize the fact that we understand our market better and fund us is good because there's a whole narrative you hear around, like for example, specifically about capital. Oh, we don't have capital is not matching to we're not, we don't have good deals or deals are not structured in a way or companies are not structured in a way that they can absorb capital in a way that we need to. So there is also a kind of like education aspect to be had in terms of just tech entrepreneurs um, on the continent in terms of structuring companies and business models in a way that they're attractive for investors. Um, so I think, I think that's also one part of this. And so, um, being here and just getting to see this all, you know, I mean, I'm 22, I, I, I don't know these guys, um, but just coming to get, to get into the space, I think it's not as inclusive as it, as it should be. It's not as open as it should be. There seems to be some uh, gatekeeping um, of sorts and it happens, I mean, it's somewhat human nature where, you know, you want to invest in someone you like, someone you know, but... I think it, it should be cracked wide open. And I think there's conversations to disrupt we see at the moment. So um, definitely hoping to see more, more change um, in that regard. But, you know, I see African founders um, who have exited companies and have started funds and are investing in African businesses. And I hope that, you know, if we, I can build Mazi to a pretty big degree, I would then, you know, pay for it to the next set of founders. And I think by then, hopefully, we wouldn't be talking about, you know, uh, the foreign founder problem that we have specifically in Kenya. Um, because I think, and I say this often, the, the best place an African should succeed should be in Africa. You go anywhere else, you need a visa, you need whatever, you get these crazy things put on you. And other people can travel to the continent without a visa for 30 days and get to and, and, and even start businesses on choice visas. And you can't do that when you go into the places. So, and when they come in here with more capital and you look better than you, it becomes a big problem. So I think, I think that's, that's kind of like really where my passion lies. And you know, even in my industry that requires a lot of capital, you know, I'm happy that I'm one of those faces that's black, that's African, and that's actually needing something. Because I think we, I have, that presence, and there are some other African founders as well, I'm not the only one, but I think will pave a really, really great way in transforming the landscape of what a successful entrepreneur or founder in Africa looks like. And, you know, you don't want to see some performative, what companies are doing now by putting a, a black face in front and saying, um, yeah, you know, this is, we are focused on X. I always say, who owns that business? who has equity 
because equity translates directly into wealth. Because where do you pay your tax? Where does it where does it come from? Um, and I know you asked me a question of does the government support you? <laughs> and that's kind of like veered off a, a tangent. Oh, like, keep going, bro, because I'm I'm gonna also just come come through with my my own thoughts because I think this is very it's valid and it's also a very big issue that we must deal with. Yeah, hundred um, percent. And so yeah, who owns a business? Isn't isn't majority African owned? If not, then don't talk to me, right? Uh, I'm not saying that foreigners should not start businesses in Kenya. Far from it. I think when we have more people starting businesses, more capital coming here, we have better ideas. But what I'm saying is that you should not come from Silicon Valley or Europe and start a company and raise capital um, for the same thing that someone else is doing that really understands the market. Um, you've just read about Kenya um, in a 300-page report by the UN. Um, so, but yeah, fortunately, this is changing. I mean, we've seen massive activity in fintech in Nigeria. So many Africans taking charge, Adnan. It's, it's remarkable to see. We are in the midst of a revolution. Um, as subtle as it may be, I think for us in the tech space, we're really getting to see that. And I'm hoping to see the same happen um, here in Kenya. Yeah, absolute facts. And I'm even just going to uh, perhaps look into, I mean, one of the things that I did read the other time is the fact that <clears throat> most of the people that get loans or grants or just funding above $1 million in Kenya are not Kenyan. And that for me is problematic because the, I mean, you know, the people who are funding these businesses could even very well be African. But why is it that there's a mentality that good business is not African business? Because that's very odd. And what even makes it even more odd is that I can't remember the statistic to, I mean, to save my life. I really can't. Uh, but it was a considerable amount of these people who are not African and received those grants or loans above $1 million. They hadn't even been in Kenya for more than a year. I mean, so where, where did that come from? Like, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Someone who's been there for less than a year, yet you trust them with $1 million with probably a minimal understanding of the market. And you're just telling them, hey, go and spend this and start, start your business. I think there's, there's major issues and it probably has to do with, you know, this, uh, this uh, pre-colonial, I mean, sorry, not pre-colonial, but colonial mindset. And sometimes it's also a white savior mindset for some of those entrepreneurs, et cetera. Um, but we, we need to find ways of leading the, the charge in terms of private equity and giving people that ability to be able to fund their, their businesses. We need to open up those doors, as you said. And yeah, I totally agree. I can see a lot of different faces and I'm hearing new names come from these different places. So I think that it's really exciting but I still think that more, more needs to be done. So thank you. Like, thank you so much for that, Jesse. And as we wrap up the podcast now, uh, I'll just reflect back on, on the entire conversation and just say that it's looking very promising in terms of the future and in terms of electrical vehicles in Africa, not just electrical vehicles, tech in general, 
I mean, we've heard of this new brand called Marathon coming from Rwanda as well, and they're beginning to start their own production. And they might not just be producing phones, they might be producing other things. The main idea for us is that we should be looking to become more self-sustaining. The idea is that we should start small. I mean, if you look at companies like Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi didn't start making cars uh, until much later in their company life. They started off by making ships um, for Japan. And uh, that was all the way in the <clears throat> late 1800s. So, I mean, it's all about not just growth, but it's about patience. And that's something I believe Africans have. Like, we've, we've been patient, whether it was, you know, with uh, colonialism and you know, we've been resilient in terms of fighting that. And now we just need to begin to own that journey of not just sustainable and like, you know, uh, like, you know economics, but also sustainable tech development and just in general, sustainable development for the African continent. So Jesse, if you have any uh, closing statements, we'd love to hear it from you. Also drop your social media and you know your LinkedIn, your company website, things like that. So people can perhaps contact you if they'd like. Awesome, Alan. Uh, thanks for having me and for the conversation. Um, I think, you know, the only way it's going to change is if people begin to understand the asset class that is um, early stage business um, and Africans begin also investing in the continent. So, it's, you know, you've got like a, a ton of money um, held by old money Africans that are just plowed into a piece of land that's apparently going to appreciate over 10 years and it's just not a productive asset as opposed to investing in a company that could 10x your, your capital in five years. Um, so that's also a big problem on our side, much as I wanna you know, point at foreign capital. I also wanna say, hey, we've not really done a great job about backing us, betting on us. And I think that there's a bit of misunderstanding of the asset class. I would love to see, um, investments happen like Wall Street bets, but for like Kenya, um, that's a retail investment scene where, you know, what people came together and took down or, or like almost took down Robinhood. Um, would be interesting if we had average Kenyans invest and understand the risks of investing um, in early stage enterprise on the continent, truly owning a piece of development. Um, in these companies that are Kenyan and building, because then you directly pro uh, benefit by how well we do, right? You um, in dividends, we're in, in equity. So I'm, I'm hoping that also begins to change over time. And so I'm super excited about the future. I'm, I'm a bullish guy. Um, I, I, you know, I, I like to say I'm a rational optimist, and I really believe that without a doubt, you know, the the best way to predict the future is to build it. So we are in the future prediction business. And um, I think the final thing I'll tell you is, I, I once asked a, one of the donors of ALA, like a bunch of money, asked him, hey man, how did you get so successful? And he said, um, I've got lucky. And it was really upsetting to me because I can't replicate luck. 
Um, but, you know, luck is some one try place, right time. And some there are some indicators that let you understand that. And so I'd say for anyone who's thinking about starting a business with something that they like, right now is a really great time to do it. Capital is only increasing. And for me, that was a mega trend that also pushed me this way. The amount of capital coming in is incredible. It's ridiculous. And if you're able to build great business as a network with, with founders who have done it before you, the door to get into entrepreneurship and to scale a really big company has never been more apparent. So go out there and set up something that you like, and you just might get lucky um, as part of that guy's definition. So thanks for having me, Adnan. Um, if anyone wants to contact me, my LinkedIn is Jesse Forrester. Um, and I have a Twitter, Jesse Forrester underscore. Um, that's also more of my public facing stuff. Um, you can follow Mazi at Mazi Mobility on all platforms except TikTok. Um, we're coming to TikTok soon, hopefully. I'm just, I, I like it. I'm, I guess I'm a Gen Z, uh, but we, I don't know if my, my, my target market is on TikTok, but <laughs> I'm hoping to begin exploring stuff like that really soon. So add Mars Mobility and our website is www.marsmobility.com. Feel free to book a demo ride and come and ride one of our bikes. And uh, yeah, hoping for successful Pariah Nation as well. Thanks for doing the good work you're doing, Adma. Uh, thank you so much, Jesse. I mean, the work that I do, as I always say, uh, could never be done without uh, the guests. So thank you so much again for your time and for your counsel as well and for your inspiration. And I'm sure the listeners are going to love this episode. Thank you guys so much, though. Please go ahead and follow Jesse. And um, we never know, we could be doing a, another episode in the next few months just to catch up and see how far Mazi Mobility is heading. So thank you guys. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.